This is episode number 347, Defining Happiness with psychologist, author, and speaker Jonah Paquette. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. The biggest sort of pitfall that I see people running into is that they again think that you hear this word meaning kind of like with awe and it's like wow this is like what's the meaning of life and what's the meaning of my life and you know we can have this existential crisis if we feel like it's not meaningful enough and first off there's meaning to every life and a lot of it is just finding the way to thread me as a small individual on this earth you know how can I feel like I connect to something that's bigger than just me. And I think if we start there and we think about what matters to that person in terms of their values, what do they want to feel like they're contributing towards, even in the smallest of ways, you know, if I can look back and think about ways that I've done that, then that helps to imbue that sense of, of meaning. Positive emotions are a key component to well-being. And a lot of us talk about happiness, and sometimes we don't even really know how to define happiness. What is the difference between some of these positive emotions like awe and gratitude? And how do you stay a New York Knicks fan when they've given you decades of disappointment? Well, I sat down with clinical psychologist, author, and keynote speaker Jonah Paquette to answer some of these questions and also a lot more. Jonah specializes in the science of well-being and emotional fitness. He is the author of four books promoting those topics, including Happily Ever After, Awestruck, The Happiness Toolbox, and Real Happiness. This conversation was right up my alley because it was all the topics that I have been researching and practicing for the last decade. Jonah completed his graduate training at Stanford University, and he worked in the healthcare system at Kaiser Permanente before his newer focus on speaking and training. If you haven't guessed, based on my comment about the New York Knicks, he is a native New Yorker, but currently resides in California where he loves to hike, travel, and cook. He also recently just gave two TED Talks, TEDx Sonoma and TEDx Woodside. One of them is about awe and wonder, and the other is about mindfulness and gratitude, and they are both linked up in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out. Well-being has many key components, and a lot of times we focus on the mental aspect of well-being, but there's also a physical aspect of well-being, and your health and how you feel on a day-to-day basis is impacted by what you put in your body. And that's why I put my trust in Prevenex. They are an incredible supplement company, and I use their multivitamin every single day. In fact, when I travel, it is the one supplement that I make sure that I don't forget. It is the most complete and comprehensive multivitamin on the market, sourced with the highest quality, most clinically effective ingredients. In fact, everything in it is pharmaceutical grade, so you know you are getting the highest quality potency. And I've actually looked at the studies myself to make sure that these are what they say they are. I was super impressed with the results, but I was more impressed with how I felt. I just got back from a whirlwind trip over the last month, which I'll tell you about in a minute, but I took the multivitamins with me on this trip. And even on days where I got very little sleep due to travel, I still had energy to perform and Prevenex is a big part of that. If you wanna try it out for yourself and feel the benefits, which I highly encourage you to do, you can use the code SONIA15 and get 15% off your first order. 
and you can try it risk-free. They give you a money-back guarantee after 30 days if you don't feel the benefits. So go to Prevenex.com, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and use the code Sonia15 or check it out in the show notes to get 15% off your first order. And while you're at it, add Joint Health Plus to your cart. It is one of their most popular items, especially amongst endurance athletes where we are constantly asking more from our joints. So yes, I'm back. I have been on a whirlwind tour and it almost feels like my old life before having kids. And it's been so refreshing and exciting and I feel incredibly energized. And I'm sure that there's gonna be a letdown at some point because I've been on such a high, but it feels so good to be able to live out my purpose outside the house. And I love being able to create these podcasts and do my coaching over Zoom and to be a mom to my children. But there is something so special about seeing people in person, connecting with somebody's energy in a room. And I got to do a lot of that in the last month. So first, I went to the Pisgah Stage Race in Brevard, North Carolina, which is a five-day mountain bike race that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. And it's almost infamous for its technical riding. And that is one of my favorite things about mountain biking, that type of challenge. Despite having a far from perfect process in my preparation, I still showed up with secondary goals to build community and enjoy being around other people and being a part of a mountain bike race. And something great happened. I actually ended up winning the race. And that was a bit of a surprise for me because I haven't been riding my bike and training six days a week, which I've been doing for the last 19 years. This year, I've changed it up because I'm taking on some trail running events. So I was running three or four days a week and riding three or four days a week. And that includes a day of rest. So some of the days I would double up the workouts. But it was an experiment because I was wondering what would happen to my cycling, especially stage racing where you are racing day after day, if I wasn't riding my bike every day. But I needed that break, that mental break after all of the challenges that I've been through and all the many years of riding my bike and switching it up helped me be more energized about riding my bike again. And coach Travis Macy has really helped me balance the two sports and has been my running coach through this process. And in March, I got sick. I couldn't train for two weeks at all. So that was pretty much the worst timing possible. But I still had the mindset of believing that anything was possible, but also accepting that I might not be where I want to be and that it isn't only about how I do at the race. It's about how I feel being a part of the race. So winning was fantastic, but also more fantastic was just being a part of the stage racing community, which is actually an international community and something that I've been doing since 2010. And that was very meaningful for me. Then I got home for one day and I turned right back around. I dropped off the family and I went to Sea Otter Classic in Monterey, California, which is a very large bike event and festival. And I typically don't race at this event because I want to be a part of the expo, a part of connecting with sponsors and people who are walking around there. And it was so refreshing to get to see familiar faces. And some of these faces I've never met in person. They've been faces I've talked to on the computer screen. One of those faces was Dr. Matt Smith from Ever Athlete, who you might have heard on the podcast, and several other people that I have created online relationships with. I was there for two days, and it meant so much to me to be able to connect with some of you and to hear that some of you are listening to the podcast and connecting with my newsletter and my social media accounts. Because a lot of times I am so passionate about the work that I'm doing that I'm putting out into the world, but I don't get to see the impact of that work. And while I try really hard not to focus on external and extrinsic validation, we need that a little bit in our lives, just as long as we're not over-indexing on those. So Getting that encouragement gave me so much motivation and it re-energized me in all of these things that I'm doing because it's hard. I love doing it and it's hard, but hard doesn't mean bad. Then I came home and I was home for two days and I turned right back around and went to the East Coast 
where I got to do a keynote speech for an organization full of incredibly high performers, where I got to talk about leadership and mastery and self-talk and managing balance and expectations, all of my favorite topics. And I got to go with my friend and, as I mentioned, coach Travis Macy. He has been on this podcast. His podcast is a Travis Macy Show podcast. And it was great to be able to each give a keynote and see how both of our keynotes landed and how they wove together in order to create a bigger picture and even more actionable takeaways. You might be able to hear the energy in my voice from all of this. I am a bit tired, to be honest. That happens after you are on the gas for quite some time. And it's really important to take that time to recharge and to rest after you have done a lot of big things. One of the questions that actually came up in the keynote was, what do I do whenever I get back from something that was really big, where it was really intense, there's a lot of attention and energy and preparation that went into it, and then I get home and then I'm just sitting at home again. And I think many of us can relate with this feeling. We work so hard for something and then we think that once we do the thing, we're going to feel a certain way and we might for a fleeting moment, but then we get home and it's back to normal. So how do you remain, quote, happy or fulfilled after these things happen? That can be called the post-race blues if you are into racing. And the answer that I gave was that it's it's important to take the rest, that the rest is part of the work. And also that it's important to focus on other aspects of life, like things that maybe you couldn't focus on as much while you were preparing for this thing. Things like relationships, things like doing things that are a little bit slower and a little bit calmer so that whenever you do go back and you need to be fully engaged and fully activated, you have those matches. Today's podcast will actually help with that post-race blues. Some of the things that we talk about today, some of these positive emotions and ways to change our focus so that it trends on the optimism side can be incredibly helpful. And actually, one more thing I forgot to tell you. So in addition to all the travel, I've been working on some things in the background that I'm really excited about. You know that I'm a certified health and wellness coach as well as a mental performance coach, but there is the highest level of certification for health and wellness coaching called the National Board Certification of Health and Wellness Coaching. And what that means is you have to go through an approved program. And most of those programs are highly rigorous programs. The one I did was at Vanderbilt University that had over 135 course hours and over 70 hours of practicum to become certified. And then you can apply to take the national board certification and the exam is only available a couple times a year. So I was taking that board certification uh, exam back in March. It's a four hour exam and it's regulated under the national medical board. So it's one of those rooms that has bright fluorescent lights where they're using the metal detector on you, where it's a pretty serious exam. And you don't get to find out right away how you did. So I found out a couple weeks ago that I've passed this exam. So now I am a national board certified health and wellness coach. And that also means I get to do continuing education credits because the recertification is happens every three years. And I love education. I love continuing to grow and learn. So this is a huge deal for me to get the certification after a two-year process and a two-year process that involved newborns and pregnancies and showing up and making sure that I was doing the work. And second... I am also very excited to say that I applied for something that I've been wanting to do for probably since, gosh, 2015 or maybe even before that, and that is a master's in applied positive psychology. And I wanted to do it at the University of Pennsylvania because that is the world's best program, in my opinion, because Dr. Martin Seligman, who's one of the founders of the field of positive psychology in the late 90s, is still there. And he's he's heading the program with many other incredible PhDs and researchers in this field. And it's all about well-being. It's all about many of the things that Jonah and I talk about today. 
And I start that program in September. I got in and I wasn't sure if I was going to get in because of the, the high level of that program. And I also didn't know that the University of Pennsylvania is an Ivy League school. So it's going to be pretty cool to be amongst some of the world's best and to get to learn with some of the world's best and then to be able to apply this in a real way to performance. I'm going to be doing that on top of racing and coaching and all of, and this podcast and all of the things that I already do. And it's such a great reminder that a lot of times we'll say no to ourselves because things might seem too hard. But saying yes, what happens if you say yes? And what happens if you don't say yes? And what happens if you surround yourself with people who are who will maybe even give you a little push to do it like my husband did for me? So I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about today's podcast because it covers some of the things that I will be learning in my Master's of Applied Positive Psychology starting in September. So I know that's a little bit longer of an intro, but I am trying to get better about celebrating my successes. And that means for me, telling people about it and telling people about it is a little bit uncomfortable for me because sometimes I feel like I'm bragging. But being able to celebrate with people who are going to be happy for you and have that sympathetic joy, have that mudita, that is a great way to celebrate. And high achievers have a very difficult time celebrating success. They just move on to the next thing. So I'm taking this time on this podcast to pause with you for a moment and reflect back. And I encourage you to sit down with somebody close to you, a friend or a family member, or maybe just in your journal, reflect back on the last month or the last three months or even the last week. And what can you celebrate? Because that gives you momentum to move forward. Okay, so here we go with Jonah Paquette. Jonah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here with you. So I have a funny question to start. It has to do with a lot of your books and your speaking is about you know emotional fitness and well-being. And I was wondering if you got really interested in that because you were always disappointed with the Knicks. <laughs> Except for this year. But yes, um, <laughs> I am a very long-suffering New York Knicks fan. They somehow managed to like make their way into my books and my talks even, which a lot of people think is weird. But, you know, when you grow up in Brooklyn, New York, and you spend your life, I always say the Knicks were my first true love. And I've never been so hurt as by my first true love when we've had 20 (laughs) years straight of disappointment. But, you know, part of being a Knicks fan is that you always believe that like, success, glory is right around the corner. So one of these years, maybe this year, maybe next year, maybe in 100 years. Yeah. And and I read that you've lived in California for a long time, but you still identify as a New Yorker. And other than the Knicks, I was wondering what makes you identify as a New Yorker? Yeah, good question. People people ask me, I will say it's getting a little closer because it used to be, where are you from? And I would immediately just say New York, because at that point, you know, more than half my life, still more than half my life is was spent in New York, but it's, it's evening and out with every passing year. But I would say, of course, my love of pizza, my love of 90s hip hop. So I still have my New York roots with a few things. Um, and of course, my a lot of my family is still back there too. So I try to make it back. But yeah, I don't know if you if you ever quite, if it ever quite leaves you, although the longer I stay out here, the more people say to me, you don't seem like you're from New York, which I guess is a sign that the West Coast is rubbing off on me in some way. It's always so interesting when it comes to identifying from a place because I grew up in New Mexico and I lived in Colorado for 10 years before I moved to Canada. And I still very much identify as being someone from Colorado, even though I have lived in Canada for 10 years and um, am planning to stay for quite some time. So I was just thinking about, you know, what are the things that make you identify with being from a place and what cultural things do you identify with that make it different from other places? True. And you 
just from what I know about you, I mean, Colorado fits for you as well. Absolutely. I mean, in my mind, the association with Colorado is someone that is outdoors, biking, hiking, being in nature, being on rivers. So you seem like you love adventure. And so maybe <laughs> the Colorado fits. But of course, Canada, you got a lot of that too. <laughs> Thanks. So something that I wanted to talk about was defining the word happiness, because I think a lot of people think this is a something I should feel all the time, or maybe they've never thought about what this word actually means. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. People find it interesting that I I always say I have a love-hate relationship with the word happiness, even though it's like in three of the titles of of my books. Reason being, I think, you know, when we hear that word, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. And um, getting on the same page about what we really mean by it is important. So I think when we think of happiness, we sometimes think of just the sort of frivolous feeling good all the time. It means that I can't have rough days. And I I think before even getting the definition, I just want to point out like to me and the way that I think and more the research that I draw from, there's nothing about being a happier person or working to become a happier person that doesn't mean we still don't experience pain, hardship, heartache. If there's one money back guarantee, it's that life's going to knock us down sometimes and we want to make room for really all of our emotions. So I'll say that right off the bat. But then when it comes to happiness itself, tend to think of it as an interconnection of three different ingredients, if you will. So the first sort of happiness is more what would be called hedonic happiness, which for listeners is more about your emotional state. So for example, if I ask you today on Monday as we're recording it or Wednesday, you know, or Friday of this week, how are you feeling generally? What is your general level of positive emotions in that moment versus you know, challenging emotion, so to speak, and how you're feeling on an emotional level would be more of that first type of happiness, which is, you know, emotional happiness, hedonic happiness. That's one piece. It's far from the end of the picture. And unfortunately, a lot of people think it's just about that. So then second piece would be more what we would call evaluative happiness or life satisfaction, which is a little bit of a different question, right? If you're kind of listening to this and thinking to yourself, well, I can think of times when I was feeling really good, but I wasn't really content with where life was. Or conversely, like you're not, you know, feeling very good on a particular day or a stretch of days or a period of time, right? But generally you step back and you look at life and you're feeling pretty good about that. That would be more sort of that life satisfaction piece or evaluative happiness. And then third, last but not least, is this idea of meaning, purpose, connection, sort of that deepest level of happiness or eudaimonic happiness. They love coming up with the kind of jargony terms for these, but really meaning, purpose, connection to something that's bigger than just me. So putting all that together, you've got kind of emotions as part of the picture. You've got a sense of contentment or life satisfaction. Do I feel good about where life is at? And then third, of course, that sense of meaning. And I just want to throw one more thing in, by the way, now they're sort of talking about a different type of happy life psychological richness, which is a whole other kind of a, that's right up your alley, Sonia, I think, but we can talk about that later at some other time as well. Sort of that life that's filled with excitement, passion, challenging yourself, pushing your comfort zones. And it turns out roughly 10% of people really kind of gravitate most to that one. So maybe it's going to even evolve further as time goes on. It's really interesting whenever we think about it, because I think a lot of people want to just quote, feel good. They want that quick hit of, oh, like, but like you said, there could be meaning and purpose and satisfaction missing in that because you can feel really good on the couch watching Netflix, (laughs) eating popcorn, which I did last night. It was awesome. Yeah. And then 
but overall, you could be trending in a direction where you don't feel good. And I, I like thinking about a spectrum or a, co- a continuum or a trajectory and thinking about, you know, what direction am I heading with all of these different elements? Because, well, especially like right now, I have a one year old and a three year old, and there's lots of, you know, moments where it's really hard and I'm not feeling super stoked in the moment. But if I pause to zoom out and say, you know, take stock of my life, how, how is my life going overall? Then, there's a lot of meaning and purpose there. And you can say, yeah, I feel really good. But the hard part, I think, is for people to pause and to take that moment to evaluate their life and to say, do I have meaning and purpose and and defining even what life satisfaction means to them? Because success and satisfaction can be really confusing. Absolutely. And we get all kinds of misconceptions that are, I think, either sometimes we try, you know, figure it out the wrong way along the way, or they are imposed on us to some degree by what's modeled for us or what we see or what sort of values get instilled in us. And I think a lot of people, to your point, like just go about life thinking that happiness is going to come as the result of this, that, or the other, making more money, achieving certain notoriety or fame, you know, meeting the right person, having more zeros in your bank account, living in a new town, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes those things make a difference, but oftentimes not so much, or they don't make as much of a difference as we think. So we end up barking up the wrong tree half the time when it comes to happiness and not really pausing and asking like, hey, for me, what is the life that matters to me? What is the life that I want to live? And by the way, different people have different needs, even within those three pillars of happiness that we talked about. Some people, really, it's about meaning and purpose and connection to something that's bigger. For others, it's more about contentment or for others, it's more about finding more joy. And you know, I think it's important to also think like, what do I need as a person when it comes to living? A good life. So, how do people start figuring out what they need? Because it's easy to look and see what everybody else is doing or what is prescribed, you know, in the book or in the literature, but figuring out what you personally need can be really hard. Yeah. One way really is sort of thinking about values and kind of thinking about what kind of choices can I make that are going to either, you know, leave me with less regret uh, for one thing. When I visualize life down the road, what what is that life going to look like? How do I feel as a result of sort of doing different? Do I feel a sense of emptiness from these kind of frivolous, happy experiences versus what seems to stick with me a little bit longer? But you know, like in my book, I write about twelve different kind of core principles that we can get into, of course, too at some point. And you know, I think the thing about them is that we don't really know, like offhand who's going to really resonate more from this, that, or the other. And so part of it too is experimentation, thinking about you know what seems to really resonate for me in terms of kind of constructing the life that I want. What we can say is that for a lot of people, we invest a lot of time and energy on things that don't yield a whole lot when it comes to happiness versus how many of us step back and really think, how can I invest in relationships? How can I invest in noticing the good as opposed to focusing on the bad in life? How can I invest in finding more opportunities for wonder? How can I treat myself with the kindness that I treat others? Because so many of us are much more self-critical. So I think, unfortunately, you know, a lot of us become conditioned to spend a lot of life pursuing happiness in the wrong way, uh, or thinking that it's going to come as a result of that. And there's not a magic answer, which I think is unfortunate of like, what's going to be the exact path for anybody. But I think if we pause and even ask ourselves, like, what kind of life matters to me, not what I should live, not how it's supposed to be, but like, what really matters to me, we're already going to be on the right track if we just have that intention in my mind. You mentioned constructing your own life. And Mm. 
in your life, you've been constructing it. And you mentioned before we started the call that you've made some changes in your career path. What principles are you focusing on right now as you're constructing your life? Oh, good question. Yeah. So for uh, listeners, I, I had spent about 12 years working in a, a large hospital system. Uh, and I loved a lot of what I did. But I also have these other parts of myself that I love to write books, I love to give talks. And I started to find more and more situations where I was having to say no to things that I really wanted to do in those areas because I was just so swamped and, and busy over here. And I definitely had this experience of thinking to myself, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, right? Regrets of omission versus commission. What am I more likely to regret? Like trying something new and having it not work out? Okay, that happens. That's life. Or never trying and wondering kind of where that could have taken me. And so for me, it was really a question of there were these parts of me that I, you know, definitely genuinely give me joy, give me flow, like flow states. Two of the things that give me the most flow states are writing and, and speaking to groups of you know, audiences and kind of sharing these kinds of ideas. And I wanted to have more of that in my life, even if it meant sort of taking a risk and seeing where it goes. And at the end of the day, worst case scenario is not all that bad. We sort of tell ourselves it is, we convince ourselves of these barriers sometimes. But I think in reality, betting on yourself, you know, even if it doesn't go perfectly, is part of the journey of life and not going to regret it. So yeah, I've been trying to invest that and and honestly balance, which is like a cliche term, but I started to have more and more times where I was like, I love being outside, but I can't remember the last time I went on a hike. I love being in nature, but I can't remember the last time I went camping. Uh, I love spending time with these this person or that person, and I haven't been doing enough of that. And I think sort of constructing a life that allows more of that, because again, at the end of the day, I don't. I haven't met. I, I'll back up. At one point, I did work in a hospice setting, and I can count on zero fingers the number of people that were like, "I wish I had invested more of my time doing all the other stuff and less of my time, you know, doing the things I loved or being with the people that I loved." So, I always try to remember that all these years later. That was like twelve years ago. Thinking to myself, you know, what really matters. That sounds like perspective is a, a big strength of yours. You use mental time travel to look into the future to think how you might choose differently today so that you can live a life with less regret and also learning from others in a hospice setting. That's something I do a lot too. I think about, you know, in the future, even if I'm having a hard time making a decision today about something, I think, how am I going to feel about this later? And that big picture perspective can really help me make the hard choices. And like you, I struggle with quote balance because. I love work. I love what I immerse myself in my work. I find flow states in my work. It brings me a lot of joy, but not having time for relationships or spending time outside or, you know, having a little bit more diversity in the things that I'm doing doesn't actually make me feel better. And I think that it's really easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole, whether you're passionate or not about the things that you're doing, because we're so focused all the time on performance or on getting that goal. But we forget that these elements of well-being actually help us perform better. Absolutely. And I think that's the part that too, you know, even on a personal level, I noticed myself getting away from some of the things that intellectually, you know, I, I, I write about this stuff. And so that was a big aha moment for me too, where I was thinking like, I've been fixating on some of the wrong things. I've been feeling less connected. I've been doing fewer of the things that give me a sense of awe and wonder in the world. I've been kind of do, you know pulling away. And as you say, I think that's such an important point is like 
we, we sometimes think happiness is the result of, you know, getting these things. And in reality, like if we become a happier person, we become that much more likely to achieve the goals that we want to have, you know, things go more our way to be more successful at work. But we want to put the cart before the horse a little bit more than we sometimes do when it comes to this. So if we become more a, a happier person, a lot of those successes do become more likely. That's actually something I wrote down that I wanted to ask you about because a lot of us know th- these concepts and I want to get into them a little bit deeper for those who don't know them. But a lot of us know that we should spend time in nature. We should spend time connecting with people. We should try to focus on you know, things that we have instead of things that we don't. And we should have a gratitude practice. We know these things and we read about them and we listen to podcasts like these, but then we're not practicing them in our lives. So how do you go from you know learning about these things to actually practicing them on a daily basis? Yeah, great question. Because yeah, I think putting it into action part for a lot of people, myself included, at different points in life, is is the hardest. And I think part of it is that we first off we we set at times too high of a bar when it comes to this. Like I sometimes will write about you know creating a gratitude journal and talk about writing down you know three things from today that went well. If that feels too uphill for someone who's struggling with depression or you know mm-hmm. is is pulled in fifty directions, start with one. Who cares? Just start to build up some of those successes, you know, on your calendar. If you can see a success every day that you know is something, even if it's five minutes outside, even if it's you know reaching out to one person that you've felt maybe you wanted to connect a little bit more with, I think we sometimes make our jobs too hard in the sense that we expect you know. A lot, you know, life is busy. Everyone listening, I can promise you, is pulled in a lot of different directions, whether it's professionally, personally, in their families, as parents, as humans, you know, have other hobbies, other demands. So the first thing I always like to think about is can I think of something that's literally doable in five minutes for someone I'm working with? Can in five minutes and take off, for example, we talked about that. Most of us, if I were to say, I, I want you to go to the Redwoods or to the Grand Canyon or to you know, go mountain bike, you know, that starts to feel really daunting if your sort of life is busy. If you can get there, awesome. But like today, could any of us not step outside and notice one thing that surprises us? Notice one small part of our life out there that's beautiful that we sometimes miss? I think most of us could do that. Or could we pause and reflect on one thing in our life that in this moment we feel a sense of appreciation for and to really close our eyes and visualize that and spend 60 seconds just getting in touch with that, then it starts to feel a little bit more uh, doable. And the more that we can kind of in the 1% change kind of way each day, just start to move towards that and build these mental muscles. We also know then from neuroplasticity that our brains will literally start changing to make tomorrow easier than today and to make next week easier than tomorrow. And we can start to call, it doesn't mean life is not going to still be hard, of course, but all of these skills and concepts that today feel really hard and hard to reach become easier over time. I actually sometimes think back to like when I learned how to drive. I was a New Yorker, as you know. I didn't learn how to drive till I was like 23. And I remember the first time I was trying to drive, it was like really hard. And if you think about driving, it is really hard. It's like you're doing 50 things in there. You're checking your mirror. And that's, by the way, if you're doing like an automatic. I can't even imagine doing a manual. But anyways, at some point, though, you're just driving, right? Because all of these things start to click as a habit. And I think the same thing happens with a lot of parts of our life, just with mental skills. We just have to be patient and kind and not beat ourselves up when we're not doing it perfectly. 
Yeah. And I think knowing what mental skills you're practicing is really helpful because whenever things get really challenging in your life and you're doing a lot of these things automatically, you don't realize it. So pausing and coming back to the basics of what am I doing? That's something that I do a lot whenever things get really hard. And uh, a lot of these like, you know, gratitude things and everyday awe, those come really naturally to me. But whenever I'm struggling, I try and make sure that I'm focusing on the things that I just naturally am doing. I love that. And you know, the other thing we do when we're busy is we say, well, I'll do that when th- when life calms down, I'll get back to mm-hmm. getting outside more. And I'm guilty of this too, sometimes, by the way, like things pile up and, oh, I'll get back to that gratitude practice when things get a little calmer next week. I can, I can see things getting a little bit, you know, less busy soon, and then I'll get outside more. And one thing that I've tried to do, not only for myself, but, you know, clients that I work with, people that I consult with, and when I teach on this is to really think more in terms of what are your well-being non-negotiables that like everything else flows out from there of course we have to work we have other demands but can we make sure that we are scheduling in each and every day time outside in the sun even if it's 10 minutes can we schedule each and every day five minutes to maybe maybe cultivate some of these practices around gratitude like we talked about you know and to start there as opposed to having that be the thing that we kind of squeeze in if everything else is done in the day, to actually have that be more something that we are building in, just like we do our other duties, our demands, our you know tasks that we have to do. Another thing that came to mind when you were talking about the 1% better, and that's something I love talking about as well, because in my coaching practice, a lot of my clients, the number one takeaway every single time is I set such a small goal and I didn't think it was going to matter and it made such a big difference. But a lot of times when people are setting such a small goal, I'm going to do this for 5 minutes, to them it seems so ridiculous and they're almost embarrassed that it's so easy and they they want to feel impressive by setting a bigger goal or mm-hmm. you know I'm not good enough unless I'm setting a big goal. I, I, this 5 minutes thing, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to start that small. So for people with like that personality tendency of you know, it has to be big or it's not impressive, it's not meaningful. What what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I'd say two things. One is I still much prefer to start with a small goal. And if they want to blow right past it and keep going, great. Like that's like extra credit on the homework assignment. <laughs> but I think sometimes, like you say, the 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 bar being higher actually gets in our way. I remember I was working with a very high achieving gentleman a few years ago, very sort of type A. And we were talking about starting a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice. And, you know, we were describing some of the benefits, how it could help him with focus, with stress, and and and, and so forth. And I said, so how about we start, you know, maybe five, 10 minutes a day, set aside time, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, or sit, you know, set a timer for 10 minutes and do it. And he was not impressed with that. He said, No, you know, this stuff is good for me, right? I want to do 45 minutes a day, hour a day, just kind of dive into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> Go big, go home. Go go big or go home. (laughs) Next time I saw him, I said, how has that gone? He said, well, I didn't do it the first couple of days. And, you know, I got frustrated with myself. I haven't done it all. And this is what we sometimes do when we feel like we're not meeting those goals is we throw up our hands, we beat ourselves up and we just stop. And I think one of the advantages of those smaller goals is that we can actually start to see the success build. It reinforces itself. We see the changes happening in real time. If you want to do more, great, but like, don't set that as your expectation. And so when we set it, you know, we recalibrated, set it back to five minutes a day, or it might even been three, I'm trying to remember. And within a couple of months, he was doing 20 minutes, 30 minutes. He was, you know, it was part of his life at that point, but wouldn't have gotten there if we were just starting off with that go big, go home mentality for sure. 
I want to go back to talking about awe. Um, mm-hmm. I really loved Dr. Keltner's work and mm-hmm. he had a book that came out and your book is fantastic yeah. as well. Can you talk about some different types of awe? Because I think people think of awe as this thing where you see like a beautiful sunset and you feel, you know, so connected, but so small, but there's so much more to awe than experiencing something really massive, like seeing the Grand Canyon or something. Yeah. And by the way, I do love his book. I have, I'm looking over my computer at it right now. X highly recommend his book. And so much of the work that I, you know, based my book Awestruck on was definitely like a lot of Dr. Keltner and other amazing people that have done some of that primary research, who I'm very grateful for. Yeah. So I think it's easy when we hear this word awe to think in these automatically very grand terms. So, you know, First off, let's just back up. Like, what do we even mean by awe? Because it's like, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. Most of the research on awe sort of identifies it as that feeling we get in the presence of something that's bigger than us in any sense that challenges our assumption or blows our mind. Now, we think that and we think in Grand Canyon, night sky, um, first steps, these like once in a lifetime moments. One of the things that I always love to reinforce both in my writing and my speaking and when I'm talking about this is like, we actually want to remember that opportunities for awe are all around us. We just usually have blinders on and miss them. Like, for example, wherever you are as a listener, and you and I can think about this right now, is like literally in your field of vision, how many things would be absolutely mind-blowing to someone if they were teleported here from 50 years ago? or 500 years ago, or 5,000 years ago. Talking on a video? What? This is amazing. Like we're in real time (laughs) through a screen being recorded. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the best technology I knew of was like my Walkman with like cassette tapes. Like that was mind blowing. And now here we are. But like, you know, we think in these really grand terms, but it's, you know, turning on a light switch and having light come on or having this conversation like we are, the changing color of leaves during like the changing seasons. You know, there's just endless, you know, there's so much that we can see right around us that's mind-blowing, but we just, we don't realize that. So while, you know, in my book, the non-science, it's not a scientific term, but I talk about capital A awe and lowercase a on capital A awe is like, you see the Grand Canyon, the night sky, all that. Great. Wonderful. Northern lights. I'd love to see those someday. But like, we actually don't want to get so fixated on that, that we lose sight of the magic that's right in front of us, but that we don't see as magic. Um, so right off the bat, I think it, like for listeners, we I, I'm guilty of this too. We talk about awe and we think, wow, it's the big stuff. It's the once in a lifetime stuff. Sure. But it's a lot more than that. It's something that we can find, of course, through nature. We can find it in sharing experiences with people we love. We can find it through technology, as we talked about a moment ago, through arts, music, performance, through the through the courage of other people, right? People that inspire us and uplift us in these ways through kind of developing a gratitude practice and just noticing the the beauty that's in our life that we don't often see or mindfulness we talked about earlier and just like being in the here and now and saying like what can i see right here what can i touch right now that's absolutely magical and i think all of those are outlets as well for awe something that i really wanted to ask you actually was Mm -hmm. What's the difference between awe and gratitude? Because like you mentioned, appreciating things around you, you know, taking a picture of a flower like that, that could be like gratitude Mm -hmm. pictures, but also it could have awe. So like, is there a difference between gratitude and awe? 
Yeah, great question. Because I think there's time, there's times where they can certainly overlap, and and I would tend to think of them as sort of there's a bi-directional relationship for sure. In mm-hmm. in in the sense that not just you know not only can they at times overlap, but the more grateful we become, the more awe-inspired we or awe-prone we tend to become because we're noticing all the sort of the, the beautiful things, the great things, and vice versa. We can have great gratitude for the things that give us a sense of awe. I think the big difference has to do with sort of that definition, if we think back to of, you know, there's something that I'm encountering that's bigger than myself. That could be in the physical realm or the idea realm, but there's something that's sort of, there's a quality of sort of vastness would be the word to it, which doesn't have to mean Grand Canyon night sky. It could mean, you know, the vastness of someone's ability at something, right? Watching Michael Jordan play basketball as a kid, even though he would always beat my Knicks, you know, there's like a, wow, how is somebody that talented? That's amazing with something that sort of challenges what I thought I knew about other people, about the world. So that's that second ingredient of like transcendence, as it's called. So vastness and transcendence put together is kind of what we would think of as awe. I can have gratitude for a lot of things that don't quite do that, right? Like I can have gratitude for, you know, my cat who's sleeping right behind my computer right now. I could, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily say I'm in awe of my cat. No offense to, to the cat. The cat's gonna um, wake up and <laughs> attack. <laughs> but you know, there are, you know, for example, here's where I think they can definitely overlap is like I can see my cat, I can be grateful to the cat or for the cat. Then I can start to wrap my head around the fact that, like, all right, so this cat sitting right here was related to you know, tens of thousands of years ago to a wild cat that lived in Africa that has somehow made its way onto my couch right over here in California. The odds of my existence is close to zero. The fact that I'm able to have an actual genuine connection with an animal, that's crazy. Like all, And then it sort of becomes a very like awe-inspiring thing. So there's a lot of overlap and interplay, I think, between those. And, you know, I think where we take things mentally can often kind of evoke a sense of awe. And so you can have sort of these different layers to awe too. Like you can see the Grand Canyon and be like, wow, I'm in awe of just the scale. But then you can start to wrap your head around the fact, how ancient is this? How old? What had to happen for this to be carved? How am I in that, you know, where am I in that time scale of millions of years? And the fact that of all those millions of years, I get to be here right now. Awe can come sort of in that form as well for many people. It sounds like the underlying current there is curiosity, asking like, how can this even be? Yeah. And actually, it's interesting you say that because one of the big effects of awe is actually that it makes us more curious. Yeah, there's a lot of great benefits to experiencing awe. But one of the, you know, in my book, I call it the three C's of awe, the letter C of, you know, when we experience this emotion, whether it's from the night sky or nature or watching a child take their first steps or arts or whatever. When we have that emotion, it makes us more connected to other people. It makes us more compassionate towards others, and it makes us more curious. So three C's, connection, compassion, and curiosity are three major effects that you see as a result of experiencing this very unique uh, emotional state. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, we've thrown around the word purpose and meaning a little mm-hmm. bit, and for some people, it's really challenging for them to find purpose and meaning in their life. Like they might be 50 or 60 years old and say, gosh, I've lived my life a certain way. I'm having these wake up calls. And now I don't have the purpose and meaning that I once thought I had. Um, How can people find that in their life if they 
feel like, you know, maybe they haven't thought about it, they don't have it, or they've changed, they're changing who they are. So they need to do something different. Yeah. It's a great question. It's one of the things that when I work with folks that are sort of near or approaching even retirement is a huge challenge because sometimes for for some people, not all, but like you have that sense of purpose, sort of the why built in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is another one of those situations where we sometimes if we, you know, you throw on words like meaning and, you know, one of my favorite books, by the way, is Man's Search for Meaning, probably my favorite book of of all time for any listeners that want to check it out by Viktor Frankl. And I think too, it's like another one of those words that runs the risk sometimes of we think the bar has to be too high. Like a meaningful life means that I'm somehow changing the world, that I'm doing this really important thing that's, you know, from the outside, people are going to talk about for, you know, thousands of years. <laughs> and as I jokingly would talk about when I have clients say that, I was like, how many people from a thousand years ago do you know their name? It's like most of us <laughs> probably yeah. not going to be the case. But, you know, meaning really to me, it's more, is there something that's beyond just myself, right? We, we live very individual lives sometimes, and we want to think in terms of self-transcendence. So going beyond just me, Jonah, you know, and you, Sonia, it's like, what can I do that helps me feel like I'm contributing to something that's bigger than just my individual life? Is there a cause? Is there a community? Is there another human life that I can touch? Is there, you know, some sort of part of life that I can feel like I belong with, whether it's faith, whether it's family, whether it's community, uh, whether it's giving back in some ways, whether it's volunteering, that can look different for everybody. But I think, again, the biggest sort of pitfall that I see people running into is that they, again, think that you hear this word meaning kind of like with awe. And it's like, wow, this is like, what's the meaning of life? And what's the meaning of my life? And, you know, we can have this existential crisis if we feel like it's not meaningful enough. And, you know, first off, there's meaning to every life. And a lot of it is just finding the way to thread, you know, me as a small individual on this earth, you know, how can I feel like I connect to something that's bigger than just me? And I think if we start there and we think about what matters to that person in terms of their values, what do they want to feel like they're contributing towards, even in the smallest of ways, you know, if I can look back and think about ways that I've done that, then that helps to imbue that sense of, of meaning. I love that. And I think that something that could be challenging down the road and something I've certainly struggled with is, yeah, I live a meaningful life. I want to be impacting others. But then you are starting to measure that impact on others and there's validation that comes with you know i'm i'm impacting x number of people i have you know x number of i speak at you know this many conferences or this many podcast downloads and then somehow it becomes like you're not impacting enough people mm. and there's this all this pursuit of more pursuit of this still isn't enough in defining success whenever you're trying to have meaning and impact others so it can get really convoluted if you lose sight of why you're doing it in the first place I think that is such an important point because, you know, and, and to me, you know, I, this isn't going to be the right term for all listeners, but like when that ego gets involved, right? And mm -hmm. it's and it becomes less about the mission, less about what you're trying to serve, and more about sort of feeling a certain way about ourselves. And that's very, you know, it's very sneaky, you know. And I think even very well-intentioned people, it's very natural, you know. If I go to a conference and there's, you know, I'm one of 10 talks that are happening simultaneously. It's very natural to say, <laughs> who, which room, why are there more people filing into that room than mine, yeah. as opposed to stepping back and back, holy crap, I get to talk at this cool conference 
and people get to, you know, I get to share these ideas with people, whether it's one person sitting in front of me or a hundred or a thousand, like that's, that's what matters. But it is so easy to kind of get this very human tendency, right? To kind of fixate on the wrong thing. So I think stepping back and asking like that, that why again, that bigger, why, mm-hmm. why am I really doing this? Why does this really matter to me? As opposed to wanting praise, wanting notoriety. Those are very seductive traps for us to fall into, but they rarely lead us to either feel happy, to feel a sense of meaning at the end of the day. But I'm glad you pointed that out because that's a very, that can be a very sneaky kind of slippery tendency. Yeah. And that feeling is constrictive. And you think that, well, I'll feel a certain way once I get some sort of notoriety, like in sports, you know, winning a sport, winning a game or, you know, getting on the podium or whatever is, is an example of that. And you think, well, once I get that, then I'm going to feel, you know, good enough. And Mm -hmm. that's that arrival fallacy piece of I'm going to be happy when I get this. And a lot of times you won't feel happy when you get that. So I always try and remind myself and I try to remind others that if you're trying to achieve something to feel a certain way, you're probably not going to feel that way. It comes back to looking at these principles that are in your book. And and if you want to feel a certain way, it's working on all of these different things that actually have nothing to do with getting something from somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So well said. So hard to do. So as I was, so hard to to do. (laughs) You know, sometimes when I write about this and I talk about this, I always like to kind of throw in those reminders to people that are watching or listening of just like, if you find yourself doing any of these, join the club because like this is what we as human beings do. We all have these biases, these blind spots, these frailties. But a lot of it is about like building awareness to it, pausing, having that intention, and thinking about how can I make deliberate choices in ways that matter for me as opposed to just those automatic kind of cycles that we often find ourselves on. You also talk about strengths in your book, which is something that I also love. And I've done the the VIA strengths survey so many different times, mm-hmm. like probably five different times to see how, you know if they've changed at all. Um, can you yeah. talk about strengths? Yeah, I love that topic. And you, you know, chime in too, because you, you you've had firsthand experience and learned about it quite a bit as well. But you know, I, as a clinical psychologist, I you know, most of my training did not focus on strengths, well-being. We have this lovely thing called the DSM, which is this, they call it the therapist Bible, and it's got 297 different ways that you can be diagnosed with a mental health disorder. And I don't mean to poo-poo, I mean, there's valuable reasons to understand suffering, of course, but we've been so fixated on suffering for so long that we've lost sight of what's right with people. Even Freud once said that the goal of mental health treatment of sorts was to turn hysteric misery into common everyday unhappiness. Like that was the best we could do. It was just <laughs> Sounds like very uplifting. <laughs> very, very pessimistic. So, you know, one of the things I really loved learning about when it comes to, to strength is like a very kind of um, well-researched, well-validated way of understanding the things that are right with you, the things that are right with listeners. And so, by the way, if you want to do this yourself, you can go to for free to viacharacter.org, viacharacter.org would be the website. And you could sign up and you can take this test. Doesn't take that long, probably like 40 minutes, you'd say 30 minutes, maybe. I'd say even less. And even well, it, less, depends, yeah. it depends how well you know yourself and how much you've thought about these questions in advance, yes. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or or if if taking multiple choice tests brings too many flashbacks for for <laughs> but yeah, you get and then you get this score that gets spit out of you know, what are your top strengths? And first off, that's really empowering for us because we're so used to focusing on what's wrong, for one thing. If I say to you, like, what's something about yourself that you wish you could change? People have a bunch of answers. What's something that's right with us? 
we're like, hmm, I don't know. Let me think about that. So we learn what's right with us. We can start to see our lives through that lens a little bit more. We can start to see how our strengths have shown up to allow us to be the people that we've been. And we can start to think about how can I kind of use those a little bit more than I might be right now in my life? How can I lean into those? How can I tap into those a bit more than maybe I've been doing so that I can find more flow, find more joy, find more you know connection to things that matter to me uh, that I'm good at and to kind of harness that. So I think there's a lot of beautiful ways it can get used, but I just think even at the core of like shifting that focus from pathology, illness, deficits that we're so conditioned to think about with ourselves to like, what is right with you? What is right with you, the individual, the listener within your family is like, do it as a group even. And it's really amazing to kind of see what what can come from that. Yeah, I think like psychologists and therapy in general got a really bad rap, especially, you know, maybe in the 90s. And now I feel like it's more of a positive thing whenever people talk about this. It's not yeah. about, oh, what are all these things that are wrong with me? And tell me about your childhood and, yeah. <laughs> you know, looking for problems. I think that's what a lot of people think psychology is. Yeah. But it doesn't, it's not always that way. There's a it's lot of different pieces yeah. that are about, you know, helping somebody thrive and flourish in their life instead of focusing on all these things that are wrong with them. Yes. And I'm glad that our field has started to shift a bit because <laughs> I agree that for a while it was grim and a lot of pop culture uh, depictions of us don't help, I will say. But um, but yeah, no, I think it has shifted and I think we are starting. And I think we're reaching a nice balance in the field of mental health where you know, it's important to understand trauma. It's important to understand depression. It's important to understand panic disorder and to have ways of not only understanding those, but to treat those. But it's also important to see the other side of the coin, what's right with people, how to cultivate and harness their inherent strengths to help them, you know, become the best version of themselves they could be, to find more gratitude and awe and wonder and compassion and all these sort of, you know, positive mental skills that we don't focus on as much. And I think we are hitting a nice, I hope, equilibrium kind of in in that in our broadly speaking mental health world ecosystem, where there's room for you know all of that, depending on where what a person needs, where they are in the journey, what their goals are, uh, and hopefully coming up with a nice kind of better equilibrium than we sometimes have them. Yeah, and also it sounds like you know some of these tools that we've talked about are actually used in dealing with some of these you know, psychological pathologies. Like you mentioned in your book, there was a guy that had depression and there was the gratitude practice that you were trying to help him apply. And it was about coming down to starting super small so that it was really easy for him to to find ways that he had find moments of gratitude in his life. And it's not always about this super negative thing and it's helping yeah. people look forward. And I think to that point, by the way, like one of the things that I was really heartened to learn more about in the experience of writing happily even after that the newer book was basically how you know a lot of these skills what they offer us is just a different pathway out of pain like so even if we are it used to be the idea that like a lot of these concepts would be good if you were already doing pretty well not too many complaints and you wanted to do better sort of going from like a plus 2 to a plus 5 almost on the on the spectrum but actually, like even if we are struggling with depression, stress, anxiety, loneliness, these are some of the same concepts that can actually help pull us out of that hole, right? If we can become more in touch with the good in our lives, if we can feel more connected to other people, if we can experience more awe, you know, practice more mindfulness, you know, all of these can actually help alleviate 
depression and anxiety and stress in ways that I think are are really cool. So yeah, it doesn't have to be something where we just wait till we're doing pretty well and then start talking about strengths. It can actually be using our strengths to you know overcome the challenges of life. I wanted to talk about burnout for the last mm-hmm. couple of minutes here because I think that a lot of people have brushed up against burnout and. Well, first of all, can you define burnout? Because I think that it's it's a word that it hasn't been properly defined and it's used a lot incorrectly. Yeah. And actually, by the way, I think I'm a huge fan of a couple of people in that burnout space. So for listeners that are interested, Christina Maslach, M-A-S-L-A-C-H. Uh, one of my colleagues, Jacinta Jimenez, I'll give her a shout out too. She wrote a great book called The Burnout Fix. You know, there's, there's a, a number of ways that burnout has been defined and there's sort of different signs of burnout it's now kind of more officially recognized as a as a real syndrome you know at its core it's really about a person's internal sort of capacity to deal with the challenges of their of their job are starting are kind of overwhelmed by the demands of that job so there's feelings of helplessness there's feelings of exhaustion there's feelings of cynicism that are often kind of part of that jadedness about about one's work But it's really where we feel like we don't have the resources, time, skills, bandwidth, whatever it might be, to deal with what's being asked of us, right? And a lot of us who work in very demanding jobs, whether it be, you know, in healthcare, whether it be in, you know, education, whether it be in, you know, really almost any field can, can obviously be rife with this. In fact, we are at a record high right now of burnout. So if you are listening, feeling burnt out, that is... You know, you were definitely not not alone when it comes to that. Burnout's a little tricky, I'll just say, because you know, sometimes we focus a lot on individual level concepts like becoming more grateful, meditating, self-care, physical exercise, eating right. And unfortunately, for in a lot of cases, you know, what we're talking about with burnout is something that's much more about what's being asked of the person being outside of their capabilities, more about that system, systemic kind of system that they're dealing with, in a sense. That is where it gets a little challenging unless you're able to really intervene more at that kind of broader level. But I'm always of the mindset too, by the way, that if I can still find ways, even if I can't change all of that, if I can still find ways to kind of develop the internal skills and strengths that I have. A, I'm going to be able to deal with that more effectively. B, I'm also going to be able to make healthier choices to myself for myself when it comes to is this the right job for me? Is this the, you know, is there a way to cope? Or is this actually a situation where I need to kind of think about alternatives? So I think there's never a wrong time to focus on those parts too. But bottom line, burnout is is tricky because it often involves things that are out of our control too. Yeah. And I think that the optimism piece is Mm -hmm. really hard whenever you are in a situation where you feel like you don't have control and you're working super Mm -hmm. hard, you don't have control over something or yeah. Like what do you do? How do you stay optimistic whenever you're kind of stuck? Yeah. And I think with optimism, we want to, I think we hear that word. Sometimes we think like Pollyanna, like everything's great. Don't worry, um, be happy. <laughs> don't worry, be happy. And that's sort of uh, what's the buzzword they're talking a lot about these days is toxic positivity, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, bottom line, I mean, there's, I, I joke because there's always like a new term for everything that's mm-hmm. people have been doing for years, but you got to come up with the, the fancy new way of saying it. But, but yeah, there is this tendency to kind of overswing the pendulum and think that, like, well, if I want to find a sense of optimism, I just have to pretend like everything's fine. 
And I think to cultivate optimism, like in a in a challenging work situation or, or just any situation in life, we really want to be, be focusing a bit more on like realistic optimism. You know, what mm-hmm. is a potential, what is in my power to do something here? You know, as opposed to when we're, you know, on the other side, it's very easy to feel demoralized, beat down, like powerless. And that's not true or healthy either. There's always something that we can do that's in our hands. It might not be that sort of perfect solution, but, you know, thinking in terms of, you know, what is one step that I can take to help myself in the situation? What is a different way of interpreting this instead of just that worst possible, you know, place that our mind tends to go with a coworker, with a boss or whatever it might be at, at work? Is there a more realistic, flexible way to think about this? Is there a way to not personalize something that might be, you know, beyond just me? So I think those are some ways that we can, I think, cultivate a bit of optimism without it being feeling disingenuous or sort of fake. Yeah, I mean, we could probably record an entire podcast on burnout and <laughs> optimism and hope. And <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, well, if we if we have a part as I have a part two, you know where to find me. But lots lots of ground to cover in, in all of these uh, these concepts for sure. Yeah. So, where can people find your books, and if they want to, you know, book you as a speaker, where can they find you? Yeah. So uh, you can learn whatever you want about me at my website, which is just jonahpaquette.com, Since that's a strange spelled name for many people. It's J-O-N-A-H-P-A-Q-U-E-T-T-E.com. And there you can learn a lot about my speaking, my workshops, my keynotes. So I do quite a bit of speaking. I'm also uh, in the process of uh, soon launching some online courses on well-being that you'll be able to take through my website, uh, one-stop shop for that. And in terms of my books, my writing, you can find those obviously Amazon, anywhere that you tend to get your books as well. Uh, There'll be links on my website too. And of course, if you are on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, I finally, after many years of, you know, resisting things like Instagram, Sonia and others, I'm. You can find me all, all in those places, and if you search for me on there, uh, Jonah Paquette's ID on Instagram or just my name on LinkedIn, would love to connect with anybody. And I always do. I respond to every email that I get. So if you have any questions or anything like that, I will get back to you, even if it is a couple of days. <laughs> Well, that's very generous. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm so excited about what people learned today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, uh, it's been great. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jonah Paquette. I am a huge fan of Jonah and his work. Make sure you check out his TED Talks. Make sure you check out his books because they can open the door to things that maybe you haven't practiced in your life. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. And please don't forget to share the show with your friends, either by word of mouth or by sending them a text, because all this information is so important to help the world be better and to help us be better too. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. I'll see you right back here next week.